Welcome aboard to another episode of the Ace Records podcast, in which the only prerequisite for participation is a flutter of excitement when talk turns to the topic of records and the way they make you feel. Um, we're keeping it in the family today and spending a bit of time with A.D. Crowsdell. He's the head of A&R at Ace, but long before adopting that mantle, A.D. was a familiar face to record collectors and northern soul enthusiasts in London on account of, respectively, his record stall on Rupert Street and, more famously, the 60s uh, Rhythm and Soul Club, which he started with his friend and fellow enthusiast, Randy Cousins. Um, 41 years later, I think, lockdowns notwithstanding, that night has become the longest-running Northern Soul night ever. Um, for AD, work and pleasure became further intertwined in 1982 when he suggested to Ace co-founder Ted Carroll that he put together a soul LP from the Kent uh, Modern Catalogue that Ace was working with at the time. The resulting uh, record for dancers only has long gone down in history as perhaps the definitive Northern Soul compilation and continues to sell to new generations of devotees. He's also worked as a consultant on Elaine Constantine's cinematic love letter to this music, simply called Northern Soul. We'll be talking about that and so much more to A.D. Crowsdale because he's right here. Hello, A.D. Hi, Pete. Thanks for the introduction. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Lovely to finally meet you. Um it's always nice in life when we somehow find a way to merge work and pleasure. And it seems to be something that you pulled off at a pretty early age. <laughs> yeah, I got very lucky um, pretty much right the way through. Yeah, started out as a record dealer um, after the, the market stall in Rupert Street, um, selling secondhand singles for uh, outside the cheapo cheapo shop on Rupert Street, and that's where I learned that you could uh, buy a record for eight shillings and sell it for ten, and uh, hopefully more. And th and that's how I, I uh, got into that end of the music. Although I, I was obviously a fan all the way through from childhood. Did you were you able were you able to buy a, enough records that you didn't like enough to keep in order to make it a viable living? Uh, no, when I did my first trip to America in 1974, I had to sell my uh, my English uh, soul collection, that is uh, soul records yeah. on English labels, uh, which was what everybody wanted. Well, a lot of people wanted and you could get good money for. So to finance my uh, business and, and, and living, uh, I had to do that, and, and that was probably when I stopped becoming a, a record-collecting fanatic and, yeah. and became more of a music appreciator because I realised, uh, you know, it was my living then, so I couldn't be too precious about anything if somebody offered a good price. So so, so, are you saying that you sort of, in, in, in doing that, you got to a point where it was no longer important to have an early press, you just wanted to have a decent kind of, pressing of a record that you loved is that do i understand you correctly um to a degree i mean i still my my optimum thing would be to well for a start i also worked out that i'd rather have an american original than a uk original which helped uh soften the blow of selling the the uk originals um because they fetched a lot more than the american ones so that that was relatively a, a good exchange rate um but then i i think I, I, I still just wanted the originals, but if somebody offered me a lot more money, I'd sell them. Is that always the case? Yeah, uh, excuse, excuse my ignorance here, but yeah, I, uh, is it? 
for instance, I, you know, the one I will occasionally come across an early uh, a British pressing of an early Motown LP, and uh, that seems to me to be often more exciting, or perhaps I don't feel like I'm not, you know. Uh, it depends on the record, really, but certainly, like maybe an early Miracles album or something, that will get my my blood racing in a way that maybe the American version might not do. Yeah, I mean that is partly to do with the fact that they are rarer generally, um, because the Americans were hits and they weren't hits over here until sort of later on. Um, but uh, yeah, some people are just hooked on the on the UK labels and others will go for US only. So there's definitely uh, different schools of thought on it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so for you, I mean, your, your kind of epiphany, am I right in thinking that your, your early epiphany would have gone back to... Was it Kelmarsh? The, the <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was the that was the rare soul epiphany. I'd all, I'd already got into Stax, Atlantic, Gino Washington, Aretha Franklin, things like that. But then I went to a dance in a disused village hall in the middle of Northamptonshire. Not even in the village; it was about three quarters of a mile outside the village. Uh, there was a little poster somewhere in Market Harbour, Kelmarsh, where I lived. I mean, Kelmarsh was a village about five, six miles out of Market Harbour. And I saw this little poster and I actually went along. I think I told a couple of my friends and it was weird. There were two dances. There was an eight till 12 dance. Yeah. And then there was this 12 till 6 or 12 till 8 dance. And I'd, I didn't really understand. I didn't know what it was. And we went along for the early evening dance, which was what we used to. There were very few people there. Mm. I think my friends all went back to Market Harbour to a party and I stayed on. I just liked the music. Uh, and, and then at midnight, it all changed. About 100 skinheads turned up, wow. which was a little bit. I, I was dressed like a skinhead, but I actually had long hair down my, halfway down my back. Right. So um, I was a little bit wary. But uh, they all came over from sort of Cambridge and Kettering and Northampton and all that sort of Northampton, Cambridge area. And the DJs suddenly started playing different sort of soul music. <laughs> and it was great, but I didn't know any of it. Um, were you on your own? Did you, were you actually, were you with any uh, sort of... No, I was on my own by then. Um, How I think old were you? I was, if it was 69, I was probably, and it was May 69, so I was... 16 yeah i was 16 nearly 17 and um yeah I, I i mean the other great thing about it as well was i loved to dance but i was it was you had to generally go up to a girl and ask for a dance in those days well in in most days yeah. um, but i saw I, I probably saw some of the other guys sort of dancing on their own so it meant i could get up and and, and that is one of the beauties of northern soul is you can sort of I mean, you're not expressing yourself to anyone else, but you know you can dance and enjoy yourself without having to worry about sort of being polite to uh, the, a dancing partner, or you know you can get into your own world and just get into the music, listening to it. So, what had you? This is you set the scene so beautifully. Um, it actually makes me want to know even more about what happened. So you, so you're in this place, and. You know, c clearly, I would imagine your your mind is turning over fairly quickly because you know it's an unusual situation. Yeah, and 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 you're sort of falling in love in a way, aren't you? Really, definitely, uh, yeah. And uh, you emerge from that place, 
and what what do you need to do so what what in your mind needs to happen next well, I'll, I'll, I will tell you one thing. Of course, what all nighters were about was um, one of these really tough-looking skinhead called George. I found out it was called George. Came over. Well, I found out because he said hi. I'm. Where did he say hi? He said I'm George, King of Kelmarsh, which <laughs> I thought was rather impressive because I think it was the first dance that had there. So to proclaim yourself king of a, of a disused railway station was yeah. impressive. He said, do you want any gear? And I had a rough idea of what gear was. I think I'd yeah. known what marijuana was. So I said, yeah, yeah, sure. And he said, what do you want? I says, well, I don't know. Um, I've got 10 bob, <laughs> which is 50p. And he gave me five black bombers, which uh, uh, I now find out are like the creme de la creme of amphetamines. Right. And um I was so scared. This is a good story. Mm. I put them in a matchbox and hid them, yeah. and I didn't take them. I think I pretended to take them. Yeah. I, I didn't want to look like too much of a, of a square, but I, I walked back home from that all night. It was about six miles, and every time – luckily there weren't many cars around at six in the morning in yeah. a little back, back street back road and I'd drop the matchbox, carry on walking if I saw a car and once the car had gone I'd have to turn back and pick up the um, things but I, I really enjoyed it and I knew there was another one coming up so the second time I, I took three of these black bombers and oh wow bloody hell, wow. bit strong How long did the long hair last? Oh all the time yeah I, I, I you know that was it was a bit of anti-fashion. I like to be a bit different, and oh, uh, I've not got. I don't think I've got a head for a skinhead anyway. So, I yeah. uh, I, I think it, it got trimmed down eventually um, yeah. to to general sort of early seventies Bowie type hair. Of course, of course, yeah. Uh, so what? Well, that's well. That's <laughs> I love the dropping of the matchbox. <laughs> Um, so that sort of set you on your path, really, wasn't it? You sort of, you were like, you, you mentioned that prior to that, you were sort of, you know, you'd got the bug anyway in various forms. And it was your, your dad's 78s, wasn't it? That were, um, were yeah, yeah, definitely. My first music was playing his 78s, which, um, the main artists that we used to play would be Gracie Fields, um, Frank Crummit, an American sort of comedy singer, and uh, very relevantly, uh, the Ink Spots and Paul Robeson um, for the black music side of it. But, but you know, I ju we just, I think most people in our family just really enjoyed music. My dad really loved music. Mm -hmm. And um, we, we got what we could. And then my, I had elder sisters, one of whom was a bit moddy. And we used to uh, go and buy all the new releases when they came out i interviewed um i interviewed elton john a few weeks ago and the reason i mentioned this is because he talked about being a touring musician in the 60s uh, with 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 bluesology and um they 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 were they were a backing band for a lot of uh, american touring musicians as i'm sure, sure you know yeah and uh and they, he, he toured with the ink spots and he had a lovely story about when the ink spot played, they played up and down the country um, to generally perplexed audiences because they were because the people that were coming were sort of too young to really understand the importance of the ink spots. The one venue where the, there was an exception to that uh, was the Twisted Wheel, 
in oh, yeah. uh, where not only did everyone sort of rush to the front and give them a, 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 a massive reception, but when they finished their set, uh, they the audience sort of carried the carried the ink spots aloft <laughs> off the stage. Uh, in sort of with love you know and uh because they because they knew they knew what the importance of the ink spots was and i thought that was such a lovely uh lovely detail just both in terms of how knowledgeable people were in certain sections of the country yeah and and, and elton of course was a massive soul fan and uh, i got to see his when he auctioned off his record collection for aids yeah um in the early days uh to raise money for them, I, I got to see he had all the chess releases of the of the mid sixties, and those sleeves had a little white rectangle, and in the top corner he, which I was never sure what this little white rectangle was for, but he'd written Reg Dwight in every one of the <laughs> sleeves um, as his possession, and apparently had he had every chess release on order from his local shop in Watford. That's amazing. That's fantastic. Mm. Uh, so yeah, that was um, so that was a sort of jumpy off point for you, and um, and I guess, um, but really, in a way, it was sort of an inspired. Uh, it was at least a very serendipitous turn of events for you that you ended up in London because London um, seemed to, to put it crudely, seemed to be in, in slight need of a bit of education with regards to northern soul so it didn't seem to be as as popular as it was in other parts of the country is that right yeah completely um although it didn't become technically northern soul until about 71 so you know i'm talking about 69 70 and it was known as old soul then we just well around our area some other people reckon it was called rare soul around their area area but uh, yeah it was a phenomenon of uh, pretty much um mainly of the north but uh, i mean we were you know our crowd came down as as near as luton and probably stevenage and places like that Um, and and there were little scenes in the west country and you know south coast and there were little scenes all over but the the stronghold was in lancashire yorkshire and london in general the soul fans had moved with the times and uh got into funk or philly or whatever was popular by then was it there were there were a few sort of i'm you know because i wasn't around at the time you know it's kind of bit, I, I guess a lot of what i pieced together uh, in terms of the kind of rising popularity of the scene comes through looking at old music papers mm-hmm. and looking at looking at the charts and looking and see what records were reissued because i guess that tells you also what the where the demand was you know there must have been demand for 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 a lot especially a lot of motown uh sides to be reissued and the, the and those motown memories al- albums that that i think was it dave godin compiled those um i don't think he did he, uh, not as far as i know um i'm sure he was instrumental in lobbying for them right if he didn't himself but yeah you're right in the in, when they had hits like Tammy Lynn, I'm Gonna Run Away From You, and the Tams, Hey Girl, Don't Bother Me, yeah. and probably Motown things like, say, Heaven Must Have Sent You, the Elgins, they yeah. were re- released by demand from old soul fans, and they were played on the Northern Soul scene, but they sold way more copies than there were number of, of people on the Northern Soul scene. It was a very small scene in the 69, 70, probably 
5,000, 10,000 people at the most, I'd have thought. So, it, you know, it wasn't just the northern crowd. There were probably the old mods uh, or, or even the current mods probably, you know, wanted tracks like that. And, and those records would have got played in youth clubs as well as, you know, the rarer soul clubs. So when you were so when you arrived in London and you were uh, you what was it uh, University College London that you did? yeah yeah and I, I stayed in um, a hall of residence in Cartwright Gardens right by St Pancras and I was walking along this hall of residence corridor and I'd only really just got into perhaps I'd been into it about a year um, by then this was 1970. And I heard the fascinations. Girls are out to get you coming out of one of these student rooms. And I just had to knock on the door. And this bloke came to the door, says, yeah. I says, excuse me, mate. I says, what, how come you play that? <laughs> oh, I love it. Says, you know, it's a record of, I'm from, he was from Rottenstall near Burnley. Yeah. Um, and uh, he says, yeah, you know, it's, they, they play quite a bit of it around our way. And he, he didn't actually go to Northern Dances, but he had a lot of soul records just from it being around those areas a lot stronger. And we became lifelong friends from walking past his, uh, his door in uni. Amazing. That was, I had, weirdly enough, I had an almost sort of uh, – parallel experience on the first week I started at university which was in this uh, uh, the smallest university in Britain which was uh, in Lampeter in West Wales and, uh-huh. uh, and I arrived and much rather like you I kind of moved all my stuff into my little my little room in the halls of residence and I set up my record player and uh, and I'd noticed one of the first things I'd noticed as I was kind of trying to find my room was um um, a, a Robin Reliant kind of pulling into the um, university car park. And, of course, this is late 1989, so there really weren't many Robin Reliants around, even at that point. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so the, whoever was driving it kind of parked it up, and he opened the door, and this very um, rangy mod stepped out of it. And, uh, and I, I sort of clocked him, you know, because I thought – you know, a mod in 1989 in West Wales. That's what are the chances of seeing that? With and then, yeah. and later on, I heard him. I saw him DJing at the Student Union, and he was playing a song that I didn't really know too much about Northern Soul at the time. But it was a song. It was a record I had. It was "Tripped on Love" by Wakefield Sun. Oh, great! Yeah, and uh, which for people who listening who don't know is it's very it's very kind of it's psychedelic. Sorry. Nearly psychedelic. Yeah, and everything is kind of – the needle is in the red on everything. This very overloaded, dramatic sort of mm. uh, uh, track. And uh, and he was playing that, and I thought I was the only person in the world that owned Tripped on Love, which I'd only bought on spec. Um, and anyway, it turned out to be uh, – it was Andy Lewis who, you know, years, oh, great. Yeah. years later um, kind of helped start Blow Up. And uh, so we were getting Blow Up nights in West Wales about – five years before um forerunner yeah before anyone else sort of got them basically um so um describe london to me a little bit what was london like for a music fan in the 70s um great uh i mean not so much for the well no the northern scene was good because it was very small there were probably 50 to 100 people which were probably 50 percent 
London people and 50% exiles living down here who got to hear word of mouth and through places like Cheapo Cheapo Record Store where, you know, record collectors would hang around and uh, if somebody fancied themselves as a DJ, they'd, they'd hire a little room and, and put a night on. So um, although there weren't that many in number throughout the 70s up until about 70, 79 really, um, it was a great little friendly scene and... Um, uh, yeah, you know, I, I was going up north all the time and bringing records back and going to America and, and people, other people were doing similar things. So it was a buzzing little scene, but, but not, not big. And musically otherwise, um, yeah, London was fabulous. I used to go to Hope and Anchor a lot. Yeah. Um, I got into punk music quite early on, about 77, and, and went to masses of, of, of gigs. So, yeah, London was uh, a great place to be. And I still kept my roots in Market Harbour. I, I used to go up there every couple of weeks and uh, see my friends up there and, and do similar things or go to Wigan Casino or uh, places like that. Did you Were you able to go back uh, to Calmarsh with your new records that you picked up in London? No, unfortunately, Calmarsh only lasted about six months. Um, oh. <laughs> but, well, actually, now perhaps a year. Uh, but then it moved to another place called Bletso. Um, I, had a, I had a mental image of you going back to, to that place and saying, I'm the, I'm the king of Calmarsh now. <laughs> No, I was, I was a bit unassuming, and I, I didn't even DJ. Um, I, I just collected and, and dealt records. I didn't DJ until 1980, I don't think, So, uh, which was probably a good thing for everybody. And uh... <laughs> come on to that. But there was, I mean, there's a couple of things that you mentioned that I want to pick up on. First of all, uh, Cheapo Cheapo Records, which is a sort of, for people who don't, who, you know, don't remember that it's quite an infamous record shop in some ways wasn't it uh very infamous because it was definitely the rudest shop i'd ever been into in my life or ever seen anybody come never saw another shop come anywhere near to to the rudeness that uh, people got shown in that shop phil cording who ran it was very very grumpy and miserable and he, he seemed to only employs staff who, who would have a similar uh, approach to business. What was it? What, what do you think his problem was? Because you know there is a, there's a type, isn't there? But he was kind of perhaps the most extreme instance. Of that. I'm not sure. I, I think he must have just had quite a few times. It was probably okay when he started, and then you, you know you get all sorts of nutters in Soho. So yeah. probably after about the thirtieth mess drinking lunatic had come in and try to either nick records or sell him some weird stuff um he probably just flipped and put on this hard persona and i actually bumped into him i mean it was, it was pretty rude to me and I, I didn't work for him i worked for a couple of other guys who ran the the single stall outside yeah. um, but but the the two were were very intertwined but i i ran into phil on manchester station once and it was the most charming lovely chatty person i'd, I'd, I'd come across it was an absolute shock uh, but in the shop it, everything was grumpy miserable and People were scared while they were looking through the LP sleeves. Well, yeah, because at the tail end of its life, I was one of those terrified people. <laughs> and, I, and I remember, um, you know, he was only rivaled in London, I think, by the, the, the guy who ran Haggle Records in Essex Road, who you, you had to wonder why he called his shop Haggle Records, because... Uh, <laughs> 
anyone dared to hack, try and haggle with him, <laughs> I'd be practically thrown out. It was. <laughs> just, yeah, I mean, record collecting is an extreme thing, and, and record dealers, um, record dealers, um, particularly on the northern scene, but probably in all scenes, are more competitive with each other than even the DJs. You know, who've got who've got a sort of reason to be competitive, but record dealers are tend to absolutely hate each other. Yeah, yeah, and presumably quite early on. I mean, you said yourself, you know, you're quite a self-effacing person. That's probably that doesn't sound like it with your scene. <laughs> no, no, but I was easy for me because I was doing just mail order, really mail order and selling at all nighters uh, throughout the sort of mid seventies. What was your biggest early find at this point? Um, my. F- well, if we're talking about discovering records, um, the early one of the early ones was that Frankie and Johnny, I'll Hold You, wow. um, which, of course, is a great story <laughs> because my mate Mick Smith, who, who who's was a bit older than me and he knew a lot more than I did, and he'd been over to America and discovered Landslide by Tony Clark and other things. Right. He used to come around my flat and I used to buy all the – beat stuff off him like pretty things and john males blues breakers and stuff like that he used to go around all the junk shops and charity shops and um i'd i'd get them off him and he'd keep all the soul that he'd picked up but one day he put this frankie and johnny record on and because we didn't know what it was played the first 30 seconds decided it was crap and threw it in my waste paper basket oh my god and uh, he drove off so after he'd gone i thought that sounded quite nice i'll play that again and thought wow really good after about the third place so i got it to ian clark who was a good close friend of ours who was a top northern soul dj and, and he made it into the monster that it is uh, so discovered in my waste paper basket that's amazing, God. <laughs> and what did what? Um, uh, and in terms of the, did he sort of come to sort of reconsider? Um, did he? He must have come to have regretted throwing it oh, in. Completely, he's still one of my best friends, and every time I mention it, he winces, and I mention it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you would, you would. You also mentioned punk coming along, and punk had a. I think somewhere else you described yourself as a sort of the oldest punk in town. Um, so clearly, you were you that that suggests to me that you must have been conscious, even at that time, that maybe, you know, it was quite unusual for someone of your age to be suddenly had had their head turned by the, this music. Yeah, by then I was twenty five, which was incredibly old for punk, and you know they were trying. I was almost the older generation that they were trying to get rid of, but um, having liked to go out and have a a good drink and a rave up and socialise and uh, go nuts to music, um, it just suited me to a T. You know, I was I was young, free, and single with plenty of disposable income from my record sales and uh, so I, I, I went I, I just loved the attitude and the energy and um, just being it was great to be part of the scene because I'd have loved to have been in that early mod scene you know either the the soul clubs or the who and small faces you know to be there while something is sort of being born um, is, is terrific and, and I think I managed that with punk. Well, absolutely, and I guess 
I guess Charlie Harper was older than you, so you probably weren't actually the oldest punk in town. Yeah, there were one or two older ones. Most of those, though, would would, would sort of... I remember Bleaker Bob from um, uh, Greenwich Village had the record shop, Bleaker Bob's record shop. Yeah. He used to come over to England, and, and he'd sort of stand around at the bar, whereas I would get absolutely shit-faced and, and pogo like a lunatic. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I really, really got into it. You know, I wasn't one of the posers. I, I was just flying around all over the floor. And And concurrently, obviously, you kept kept your hand in with the stuff that you were listening to so for you it wasn't wasn't really year zero for you was it because it was just more stuff to get excited about along with all the other stuff yeah yeah um yeah i, I remember going to wigan casinos upon there weren't many of us there um i mean i wasn't i didn't have I just had sort of spiky hair and tight trousers and yeah. tie on and things like that. I didn't have too many razor blades coming out of my ears, yeah. but um, there, there weren't many at Wigan. But nobody minded, and uh, people sort of knew me anyway. Of course, of course. Um, so you sort of became, um, I guess, the big turning point for you in a way would have been 1982 when you happened upon Ted Carroll and. Um, you, I mean, this is something that a lot of us fantasise about, being asked to sort of compile a record. So it's it's your chance to really, you know, put your stamp on something that people can have in their houses. And it's a bit of a, it must have been a bit of a dream come true. I mean, I know you've done so many since then, but at the time it must have been a bit of a dream come true. Yeah, absolute thrill, you know, particularly as, you know, I, as a collector, I revere... Uh, vinyl and you know to get my just to get my name on on something as a thank you would have been enough but i i i actually thought ted had asked me but he said no that i i used to go up to his shop in goldborn road and buy soul records off him and i eventually sort of learned that they they got the licensing rights to kent and modern and and he reckoned i came up to him and and suggested we do an lp of soul rather than they were putting out mainly rockabilly and blues. So, uh, you know, it was right time, right place again, which has happened to me quite a few times. But then again, you know, I, I did used to wander around all the right places. I'm holding uh, the resulting record in my hand right now uh, for dancers only. And it's got liner notes by Harborough Horry. <laughs> Yes, yes, that's my pseudonym given to me by my partner in the 60s, Randy Cousins. He just did a joke little spoof and gave everybody gangster names. So uh, I was Harbour Horace, which was my gangster name. So I used that for my sleeve notes. <laughs> uh, the other thing being that if you read those sleeve notes, you won't learn much about soul music. You'll learn that we were all having a great time and that these records are brilliant and you should dance to them. But I didn't know sod all about any of the artists, uh, so I didn't even attempt to, to, to write anything sensible. We just tried to make it. It was, it was, it was partly um, on purpose. You know, we didn't want to be po-faced and boring collectors like some of the compilations that you you saw you know we were tied in with the 60s nightclub you know the, the dances in, in at the 100 club and in west Hampstead. so it was just like getting the whole scene together and and, and having a great time to good music uh, but lacking in information i'm afraid that's okay because you've got it doesn't really matter because once once you got what you need really as a as a fan and i remember i, I remember this being the case not so much to do this because I bought this years later. I would have been twelve when this came out, but certainly the um, 
uh, the What's Happening Stateside compilation that came out, the, the sort of, that was like a budget compilation that came out a few years mm-hmm. later. And I remember that was the um, that was the record where I heard um, um, uh, "As Long as I Have You" by Garnet Mims for the first time. It was the first time uh, I heard "Wish I Had Someone" by Irma Thomas, and um, you know, real sort of songs that can sort of change your life a little bit when you sort of hear them for the first time. And I didn't know anything about those people, but it doesn't really matter, does it? Because you got the name, you can yeah. go with the name and sort of find out about that person later yeah, particularly in those days pre-internet you know you, uh, it was one step at a time the first step was to get the good the great tracks onto an lp you know we could worry about learning about it later you know we just got it out there for people to listen to and enjoy and it, it just arrived at the right time and and, and uh, took off and were these all songs that did you know all of these songs at this point or were you get allowed to kind of go through uh, the the Kent archives and sort of augment what you knew with st- stuff that you were hearing for the first time. Yeah, I knew a few. Um, we, you, there were listings about in those days. There wouldn't have been 100%, but there were plenty of listings to look at. And what I really did and what I'm very good at is um, ringing up friends and asking them. I, I know people who know better than me, so I, I'd go to them and say, I mean, my partner Randy Cousins would have given me quite a few of the Kent Modern things. Um, I didn't even realise Mary Loves I'm In Your Hands was so brilliant. It was flip of you, turn my bitter into sweet, and I'd never played the flip. Um, but Randy absolutely adored I'm In Your Hands. And and lots of other people. There was Tim Ashibend up in Stoke, uh, Gillian Burton on Trent and different people. I'd, I'd ring up and say, you know, know anything on this label? And, and inevitably they'd say, oh, yeah, you know, there's that Saints track. Or yeah. uh, you know, Lowell Folsom did a good one. And, and so it was a bit of a, a joint effort with me controlling it. It's always worth playing the flip, isn't it? That's something I've learned a lot as I've kind of gotten older. You know, it's just because that, cause that thrill of, you know, because you might be the first person with taste to play the the flip, and then it's yours in a way, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you sort of claim intellectual property on it. Um, but it's weird though, because I remember as a sort of twelve-year-old, thirteen-year-old kid when we got new singles, we would play both sides. I remember playing um, the flip side of "You've Lost That Loving Feeling." There's a woman, absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Um, but. As later on, once you knew a record was big for a title, you were so pleased you'd got it. You sometimes, you know, you, perhaps you were... I was taking in so many records then and, and you know, they were all flying through my hands that I, I, I neglected a yeah. lot of times to, to either play them or, or really listen. I mean, I was very guilty of listening out for the right beat and feel of it. And if it wasn't a stomper by then, I mean, I still love ballads to pieces, but I don't know. I think once I was working at it and it was my living and I was trying to discover stuff, I did yeah. neglect the, the, the better sides often. That kind of, There's been a broadening out, hasn't there? And there's sort of certainly in recent years you hear, I mean, I didn't really up until about maybe nine years ago. I don't think I... I I'd ever heard the term popcorn, and I didn't really. It took me a while to get get a kind of a handle on what popcorn was, even though, you know, a couple, a couple of friends of mine had tried to sort of describe it describe it to me. But this kind of broadening out into sort of going beyond the genesis 
uh, of soul music to sort of like zone in on these kind of lugubrious, moody sort of uh, classics that sit at the intersection between soul and kind of jazz and rhythm and blues and and you know what so yeah these evolutions are kind of quite interesting aren't they and they kind of in their own way they can broaden you open you up into things that certainly maybe as a collector in the 80s you might yeah well actually popcorn was very instrumental in me becoming a record dealer because that scene has been going since as long as northern soul and belgian kids used to come over to England looking for these things. I remember Leon Haywood's um, LP on Vercalian was massive in Belgium. And there once this was very odd because it had great soul singers like Major Lance and Billy Butler and Leon Haywood on there. And then it had, you know, cha-cha-cha numbers and um, these weird bloody instrumentals by Underwater by the Frogmen and stuff like that. (laughs) And and, and so, you know, uh, yeah, I, I used to that is one of the ones where that really started me um, going to America and, and picking those up and selling them to a Belgian dealer. Uh, and that actually s- partly subsidized my trips. So you mentioned, Bel- for people who might not know, Bel- Belgium is a sort of global capital of, um, uh, of, of popcorn, and which is something I, I've never really been able to get to the bottom of why why it was it why belgium of all um just a dj started playing it in one of the clubs i think in antwerp um it's belgium and a certain part of france and perhaps just touching into italy um and it just stayed very localized it was it was an in scene they do a slow sort of jive together um with partners a slow jive to the records and they, they just love that beat that sort of it's mid-tempo, but it's more than that, isn't it? There's, 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 there's a feel to a popcorn record. Yeah, um, it's quite lugubrious, isn't it? It's a sort of has a sort of slightly, um, yeah. There's a sort of it's spacious. I think there isn't. Too, it's not. It's not too. There's not too much going on, and yeah, it's it's quite sensual. But as you say, it's a bit slower than you might normally expect. It is hard. It's hard to pin down. I mean, and and as a result. I think there are a lot of accidental popcorn records, aren't there, that sort of get co-opted into. Well, like in a sense, they're all accidental because the the, the the genre wouldn't have existed when. Yeah, like like Northern Soul, okay. nobody ever made a Northern Soul record if we, we exclude the Taylor Maids, and nobody ever made a popcorn record intentionally. Um, it's just the the beat yeah. fits, and, and and they go for it. Then the beat matters yeah. even more. I would say to popcorn collectors than it does to you know Northern Soul collectors because. Uh, you know, these days in particular, there's not many pop records get played on the northern scene. One or two, but but there's a lot less than there were in the seventies. Right. Okay. And so when you uh, when you started your own night, it wasn't initially at the Hundred Club, was it? It was originally was it? When it was actually it, in Covent Garden the first night in August 1979 in a Maiden Lane in a club called Henry's. Um, in a in a pub down there, and uh, it, the first one was was a success and a brilliant night. Uh, we had two there, and then we moved to the railway in West Hampstead. We had a year year there, and and then eventually by eighty one, I think we ended up at the Hundred Club. 
100 Club, which would have been known to you as a sort of late adopter of punk. Well, not a late adopter of punk, but punk was a late adopter of you in a way. Um, but um, and so, which is so, which is where you've been um, ever since. Is there any? Is there a fundamental difference uh, in terms of bet- between now and then in terms of DJing in a venue like that? What have the music's changed in forty years? You mean? How the music's changed, or you know what, what the sort of what's likely to kind of are there in terms of what's, you know what's what's popular, what's kind of emerged as something that might be popular now that might not have been so much then. And your in your own experience of it, how do you do you enjoy it as much as you did? Yeah. Um, well, when we started doing the all nights, I mean, we didn't start the all nighters till probably getting on for eighty two. So the, the, there are two distinct periods. There's the earlier, which is like club, what I call club soul, which is a mixture of soul and rhythm and blues, and it's great mid to up tempo soul music um, designed for drinking and socialising. Whereas all night of music is designed for staying awake all night and dancing your feet off. Right. Um, and we didn't get into that, like I say, till about 80, early 82. And then we were just really copying uh, the, the Northern all nighters and we didn't have our own sound. But then this club up in Stafford called, uh, at the top of the world, all nighters in in Stafford in 1985, I think they started sort of r- ripping up the oldies versus newies um, uh, playlists, and they and they wouldn't play the old mm-hmm. favourites, and they'd only play new discoveries, and we sort of took on that to sort of we, basically we, we became progressive in finding music and and, and making it yeah. so that. We had our own sound at the 100 Club rather than just being an all-nighter. We were the 100 Club all-nighter with our own sound and our own tracks. Did you encounter any resistance when you made those decisions? There must be people that would just sort of preferred it yeah, the way it was. Yeah, um, but not too much because I, I'm quite a pragmatist, if that's the right word, and I would always like the DJs to mix it up between oldies and new. I think, you know, I mean, Stafford did pretty much rip it up and start afresh, but that was never as popular in in a way it's it's more popular now than it was at the time Stafford is legendary now but there were some very quiet nights there because they were so extreme whereas the 100 club i didn't i i, I was always perhaps a bit scared of failure i always wanted to ensure that people were having a great night as well as hearing new music so it was getting the dj balance Totally, I totally agree. I'm totally the same. You don't really want to be it to be too much like an academic exercise in a way. You want to, you know, give give people a little bit of what what they know, and that will sweeten. Hopefully, that will predispose them better towards what they don't, you know, what they might soon come to. Yeah, learn. I, mean, I mean, if you had three hundred, um, you know, absolute fanatics who only wanted to hear new music, great. But generally, you didn't. You probably had fifty to a hundred, so you've got another sort of hundred to one hundred and fifty who need entertaining as well. So you got you got to mix it up. And are you still DJing with records? Is yeah, you? although. A lot of my things are acetates, um, either ones that I've found in America or acetates from master tapes that I've been lucky enough to get through my work with Ace Records. Because that's the sort of that I, I often think about that with DJs who uh, sort of DJ abroad, for instance, and uh, and you know the the kind of 
having to check in your records. Have you ever had to do that? Um, no, luckily. I mean, the good thing is when you, the DJ spots aren't that long, you know, perhaps an hour, two hours at the most. So you only really need to, you know, if you know what sort of crowd you're going to get, you only need to take 100 singles. Generally, you can take it and, and carry on. Um, so, mm. yeah, it's not too bad. Um, so, as you, I think you've mentioned before that you know you, the sort of emphasis of your enthusiasm has shifted slightly in line with what you do for a living. So, I think you mentioned somewhere that um, that you know these days the the thrill has sort of slightly transferred to maybe when you're looking, you're going through tapes of things that have yet to be released, and there's the sort of uh, you know the the excitement of finding something that no one has heard that has just been on a tape, and I can I can completely <laughs> completely see that that would be I can't but you know it'd be unimaginably mm. thrilling. Uh, that's that's where the kind of that's where the buzz is for you more. Yeah, now. and I'm again super lucky being at Ace. Uh, I mean, quite recently I've I've just been trawling through some old tapes we've had, probably from a rock and roll source or a blues source that I thought there wouldn't be anything in there, and lo and behold, you know, tucked in there there's 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 a great soul track or a, you know perhaps maybe a ballad, maybe a dancer, but you know just a, a, a great song in there that I know people will really love to hear and we've got it exclusive yeah. you know we can say you know we've preserved it from from copying the tapes and and, and we're getting it out to people who will appreciate it and also of course one of the main things is giving the credit to the people who've done it because that's the most important who made it who sang it who played the instruments who wrote the songs are very keen on songwriters i think they're so important so you know all that research it, it does have such a, a you know you're winning all ends up you're winning with the customers who hear the music and the people who made the music are getting recognition and i mean it's sad now that everyone's so bloody old as half of them aren't here anymore but uh, you know, even sometimes just getting the recognition to their family, their descendants, saying, "Yeah, you know, your granny or your father, you know, yeah. they were actually really, really rated over here, and we you know we think they had huge talent, and and, and we, we just love it." Well, this brings me on to the the sort of the the series of. Um, uh, kind of uh, uh, and soul sides, which I think uh, an ongoing um, a, an ongoing source of sort of pleasure, you know, for those of us who can sort of follow these things. And uh, so, some of the presumably all of these records, all these previously unreleased seven inches that um, that come out on Kent, are they, would all the, would these all have been found by yourself? Um, uh, well, not myself. Really, it's it's the record company altogether. Really, because like, I I mean I would I would have found some of them lurking um, in tape vaults, either American tape vaults with the, with the quarter inch reels on on my trips, or more likely these days I'm finding a lot of stuff um, on the internet and getting people to send them over, or or going into an old catalogue that we've got here in the studios and, and, and finding, you know, unknown soul artist is listed and it's a great song on there. So uh, what about 
you mentioned, uh, you know, the, on, on, you know, there are you know moments where the, the the songwriter or the singer is still with us, and that must be. I mean, sometimes I would almost imagine it must be quite a bewildering thing for them, especially if they've moved on in their own lives and they can't see. I I played. I host a weekly show for Soho Radio. The other week, I played uh, "Give Me a Little Action" by Sam Dees, but. Um, so I was trying to. I was rooting around to see if it had been released elsewhere before, and it didn't seem to have done. So I inferred that this must have been somewhere along the line. This must have come to come to light relatively yeah. recently. Yes, yeah, I No, you tell me. Tell me how that that that, uh, that process would. Well, come with about. that, in the case of that one, um, we got in touch with um, the. GIN, G-I-N-N Music Group over in Atlanta, and and they had bought up all the um, Moonsong, Clintone, and Hotlanta and Aware labels from Atlanta and from Birmingham, and that uh, they had you know a huge bank of tapes, and uh, they, they they copied them, and we became the licensors. You know, we actually went in there for probably for Lolita Holloway. And Ripple and uh, John Edwards, who came, you know, whose records had come out. But then we found a, a big quantity of um, Sam D's demos. Some of them had just come out in Japan as well. They did a deal in Japan and they did a deal with us in England. Um, so, you know, this was just a huge stash of tapes. And in among them are, are these Sam D's demos, which, you know, are, are not far off the, the the you know they're probably as good as the finished masters by different artists doesn't sound like a demo no, no sorry some of them aren't as well yeah i mean some were finished but didn't come out um but but we did put out two cds with a, a combination of demos and uh, on unissued but generally, Sam D's, you know he did record himself but but most of his uh, uh, the the raison d'etre behind people working with Sam Dees was to, to get the songs for other artists. Well, someone like Sam Dees, who kind of went on to write for people like Whitney Houston and George Benson and would have presumably kept up to speed with, you know, the evolution of soul music and R&B. Um, what would his response have been to, to, to this kind of interest in stuff that he might have even forgotten. It was very mixed with Sam because um, that original deal was with this, the guy who owned these recordings originally was Michael Thieves, who was a terrible gangster out of Atlanta. Um, and he was sort of laundering his money through record companies. And when he got put in jail for multiple murders, I think, um, uh, the record labels were just sort of auctioned off and the Gin Music Group bought them. So it's they're more business dealers. You know, it's not like a continual ownership. <clears throat> um, you know, um, and, and Sam just didn't like uh, the way that his music was, 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 was coming out. So he had very mixed feelings about it. I mean, he loved the music, but he, he wasn't very happy with the, the, the mechanics of it. Well, I guess the history of gangsters and, um, and 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 brilliant music. Gangsters historically seem to have very good taste in music, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I was watching the um, the Ronnie. Have you seen the new documentary? Yeah, it was really Ronnie's good. 
Yeah, the, the, the kind that. gangster who um, ba bailed them out and <laughs> didn't want any money back, but uh, no. he's got the odd pint now <laughs> and again. Yeah, it was really sweet. I'd love to know more about that. It is. It's just like this, you know. Like we finally managed to lo locate the soft side of gangsters, and it seems to be the bit, the same bit. Of yeah, because the other one is the Burt Burns story. Did you see that film? No, I know a little bit about Burt Burns and his slightly um, uh, nefarious activities. Yeah, well, no, I don't, I'm not sure he had nefarious activities, but he did. He certainly knew people who did. And and if you ever see the document, the documentary is magnificent. And uh, you know, again, the, the, there's a the sort of kindly gangster in there that helps is a major contributor to the music, but not in a musical sense. Isn't this why Van Mor I read somewhere that this was a Van why Van Morrison had to move to Boston after um, he uh, stopped recording for Bang was that he um, he behaved so he's I think I, this might have something to do with him kind of getting out of his contract by by recording lots of meaningless silly songs. But um, apparently he had to move to Boston because the heavies who knew Burt Burns were so furious with him that they, there was every chance that they might go and sort of... Well, no, I'm not sure that isn't portrayed in the film, is all I can say. I, I don't know the story on that one. No, no, okay. Um, yeah, and also um, there's Birdland as well. You know, there's so many kind of stories, such as... Um, Lullaby of Birdland by Sarah Vaughan, which I think was a, a, a song that was specially commissioned as a sort of musical calling card for the gangsters who sort of uh, who ran it. I think that was yeah, in another right. document, documentary somewhere. Anyway, um, so um, you, there are so many amazing compilations that you've put together that you, I would imagine you must be inordinately proud of. I'm going to name a couple at random and... Uh, so you just sort of uh, tell me how they sort of okay. came together. Now, one one label, one imprint that I wanted to ask you about, and I'm not, I'm, I'm, uh, is it? How do you pronounce? Is it Dore? Uh, I pronounce it Dore, yeah. But I'm, I suppose it's yeah. Dore, isn't it? Dore me for so la tea. But oh, I, I think everybody pronounces it Dore. Yeah. Because there are sort of labels that kind of come into come into vogue fairly late in the story of Northern Soul, aren't they? And uh, it seems like this was one of them. Yeah, um, they didn't have. It wasn't like Merwood, which in the, in the sixties you know, had the hits with Jackie Lee and the Olympics and people like that, and 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 they were all relatively easy to find. Dore had such a broad. I mean, Merwood was a soul label. Uh, Merwood was the pop. Yeah equivalent of it but Dore's releases were all mixed up and nobody was quite sure just by reading a list of yeah. Dore releases what was soul and what wasn't so yeah it, it took a lot longer yeah. for the, the the great music to come out of Dore um, or to be discovered and also for a big label it's got very it's got a hell of a lot of um, records that like there's only like two or three known copies in the world so uh, it, it's it's, a, it's a, an odd one but it was run by an incredibly odd bloke Lou Bedell who's a, a comedian okay. originally and uh, then became an because he, he gave Phil Spector the first break with the teddy bears and to know him is to love him and uh, he was an absolute character Lou Bedell uh, so not always good Right, right. Well, yeah, kind of par for the course often. Uh, there's a couple of, for me, there are a couple of absolute indisputable 
sky high masterpieces that were released on on that label um and actually i noticed looking at the track listing they bookend the um the 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 compilation um so the first is gone with the wind is my love by rita and the tiaras now this this full version is this was was its first release under your under yeah yeah that wasn't this is when i was looking to branch out on my own and i'd been to america and i I came across lou bedell and i personally i was just starting horace's records named after harbour horace and i think I'd, i'd slowed down my work a little bit with um ace kent then because it was when vinyl was changing to cd and it was getting to a point where you sole record sales were that you couldn't quite make enough on vinyl and you couldn't quite make enough on CD. So I wasn't doing so much at Ace mm. at that stage. So I started my own little label, Horace's Records. And, and I, I was in Los Angeles and I met up with Lou Bedell and we did a deal to um, put out these records. And, and, and we took the tapes into the studio and, and copied them. And it turned out that th- th- this the, the original master tape had an extra verse on it, which was how it came out. On I don't think I even bloody noticed, to be honest, because I've never been great at detail. Well, sorry, I wasn't great at details. I've got a lot better since. Yeah, yeah. But I think it probably took some... When, when, was it, when, did, when did you I, notice I think my friends told me, like, I, there's, there's a guy called Andy Ricks who's, who's a bit of a genius at knowing things, uh, and they probably said, you, you know that Reader of the Tiara, is it, it's, a, it's got a whole verse in there, isn't it, on, on the 45? And I actually own the 45, and it's a super rare record. I own the 45 and oh, hadn't right. noticed that this, this track I'd put out was longer. Brilliant, brilliant. I first heard that song. I've got... Um... I've got Brian Matthew and his producer uh, Phil Swern to to thank for oh, turning me on to that because it's one of many brilliant records he's playing his show. Yeah, you know? and um, and uh, I said the other song, I think the other one really. I mean, I wish there was a longer version of this one. Keep on moving by Little Johnny. Wow, well, now we're talking a rare is- record. God, yeah, yeah. I think there's one known copy, perhaps two. Uh, one is inevitably owned by my friend Butch, who DJs at the 100 Club, and he's the guy who broke it and made it popular. Um, it, 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 there wasn't even a master tape. It only got out because somebody illegally taped Butch's uh, set when he was DJing down in London, and the tape got to the people who were, who were issuing Doré records at the time. Um, but it's so rare. I, I need to get the flip. The flip's quite a good instrumental, I think, um, and it's by the Creators Band, which later became War. And in fact, one of them was uh, Howard Scott was interviewed about the Hendrix thing in the in the Ronnie Scott Club uh, documentary we just saw. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah, he was he was one of the creators. So I sort of need to get a, a, a dub of the B side, but Butch is very um, <laughs> is probably not going to lend it me. Because it's uh, like well, super rare. I guess. What, what, what sort of, I guess, what, how, how long ago would he have come he across probably that? picked it up in the 90s, something like that. Um, so, we, so I guess if it wasn't a known record at that point, I guess he probably wouldn't have picked it up for very much. But now I'm guessing it would it, it would be a matter of yeah, thousands. And, of and obviously he made it he made it big in the first place. Um, so you know, fair enough. But yeah, you know, he, he, he's ahead of the the curve. So uh, yeah, yeah. And and it's good. It's uh, funny. 
I, I think it's the least um, Los Angeles sounding. I think it sounds very major lands Chicago. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and as you say, it's the opposite. It's very much the opposite case. Uh, uh, the other extreme to Merwood, who, which is actually a label that, again, partly as a result of you know having having got the, the you know your your compilation, the Northern Soul compilation that that you put out, um, is just you know there there's this kind of this Merwood sound, which is um, which in my which corresponds most closely to the, the, a kind of what I would call a Northern sound. Northern soul sound in my head, that kind of quite charging, exciting, kind of a relentless sort of sense of, yeah. you know, that galloping. galloping yeah, you know I, mean, I mean, it's it's more an epitome of Northern soul is than, say, Tamla Motown from 1966, although the whole sound is based on Motown. Uh, the actual Northern sound probably prefers that even edgier Merwood sound, which is sort of slightly faster and um, brilliantly arranged, of course, uh, um, by James Carmichael mainly. Um, Everything sounds like it's in a much larger room, like there's a bit of kind of almost like a cavernous uh, ambience to a lot of Merwood recordings. Yeah, yeah, um, and, and sounds a, sounds a, a bit effortless as well, considering the speed that some of them go along at. Uh, Shotgun and the Dog, yeah. Jackie Lee is unbelievable. Um, and Shirley Matthews, of course, was a fantastic writer, as was Fred Smith and, and Bob and Earl. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, this is just wonderful. You know, the, this this kind of canon you've amassed. You know, as a as a as a as a compiler of these records. You know, it is like you know, for someone who's just kind of coming into this music as a sort of teenager, it would be all that you would need. And you know, you know, that's what a what a fantastic sort of uh, legacy to be in the process of leaving. Another person i wanted to mention he was also done kind of comparably sterling work into sort of introducing younger people um to, the, to this music and i and i speak vicariously from experience because i've seen my kids get into northern soul as a result of elaine constantine's northern soul film which i know that you were sort of involved in in the in the lead up to it ah, so, so your kids have got into it through that oh, oh yeah yeah they bought they bought the um you know, you know the sound, the sort of the the companion yeah. record that came out. Uh, they they both bought it as a result of seeing it. Excellent. So it's what is it? The, the, her, 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 to be to be honest, kind of almost kind of improbable plan because it almost the way she tells it, it almost sounds like she made the film in order to sort of have that effect on a sort of wide scale. Wide scale. So for people, I mean, why don't you t rather than me telling people, why don't you tell people what? How, how she actually got, you know, the, the 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 planning for that film was was years in advance of its actual creation. Yeah, um, she used her experiences. I mean, she was probably later on the Northern Soul scene. She probably got into it in the, I don't know, later eighties, something like that. I know she was a big scooter scooterist who, who uh, quite a few, uh, uh, you know, and a good dancer and quite a lot of those like Northern Soul. And yeah, so it's her experiences of the scene and the stories, and, and she loved the um, the fanatic the fanaticism of, of the DJs and the collectors and and the, the hardcore end of it, as, as you can see from the film. Um, and, and and yeah, she, over the years she 
had had it in the back of the mind to write it and and it probably took you know three or four years to to get the thing together but then once she had done it and got it going she had an absolute nightmare once she'd made it getting distribution getting screenings i mean it very nearly came out direct to dvd that you know, the, the British mm. film industry let her down terribly. Um, there was no support, um, and it was only by word of mouth and, and a, a genuine pressure group from Northern Soul fans to get it shown in the cinemas. Otherwise, it would have just sort of slipped out and no one had noticed it. But in, in the end, it got showed in sort of hundreds of cinemas around the country. Uh, it wasn't a massive hit or anything, but it, it did get very well received and, and and seen where it should have been in a cinema not just on the tv and also it was and it, people still you know like my my kids only watched it in the last couple of years so i think it's one of those films that if you're sort of getting into music anyway then that's a film that you'll just press select on well you, you know when you're kind of browsing through your sky um, viewer or whatever, so I think it is. It's one of those films that's going to kind. Of, that's always going to be yeah, there for people. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's another one, funny enough, called Blue Juice. You ever seen that? It's uh, no, it's got no. Sean Pertwee and Catherine Zeta Jones in, and it's about the Cornish surfing scene. But there's a sort of side story of Northern Soul in it, and it was a very sort of small film. Didn't do much. But it's sort of, you know, over the years, it's become a bit of a cult classic for surfers and, and music fans. And it's got early house in it as well. I think it, it, it's well worth a, a watch. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I agree that the Northern Soul film will be there as a reference point and, 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 a, and a great thing yeah. for music fans. If they want to know a bit more about Northern Soul, they'll get a lot of it from that. I mean, it is, it is rather extreme yeah. in the drug usage, but then again, some people's lives were. Yeah, and, you know, and it's, uh, I mean, the bottom line is, uh, and actually a little bit like the, the, the Ronnie Scott's film, although that was a documentary, obviously, um, we, I watched that with my with my daughter who's seventeen, and she was um, she wanted to, she just instantly felt this kind of, you know like the way that you do when mm. you're that age. She just wanted to go to Ronnie Scott's yeah. like now <laughs> and being in the. Actually, that was such a good documentary because there's been so many bad ones recently, particularly on the BBC, I think, that I was so pleased that was good. And I like your daughter. I wanted to go down Ronnie Scott's, and I'm not particularly a Ronnie Scott's fan. No, that's what that's. I think if you're open, and you know, often at that age, you're more open than you'll ever be. Then you, these things just kind of go right into you. And of course, the great thing that, like, the thing I, I just think is genius, and what a wonderfully idealistic, optimistic thing to do is with Elaine. She literally started a club uh, for kids so they could just kind of dance to this yeah. music. So they literally. What you were seeing in the film was the result of a jet, of a jet, almost like a social, a very benign social experience. Yeah, yeah, it was. I used uh, to go to to watch the dance rehearsals, and it was really thrilling. That that was probably, yeah, I mean, it probably helped regenerate the scene quite a lot. There's still a lot of young people in the scene from that stage that are keeping it going and keeping it exciting. Well, why would it, I mean? Not everyone's going to keep it going, but it's like anything, isn't it? And you, you will know. You'll probably remember equivalents from when you were much, much younger. That um, you know, 
there's that thing where you, you kind of cast your mind's eye back to, you know, the people you were knocking around with when you were 18. And at the time, you sort of think, well, we're always going to be into we're, even, we're always either going to be into this music or we're going to be into whatever follow. We just this is just we've kind of taken a pledge for life. It really feels like that at the time. But of course, it's not like that, you know, and like, you know, for 30 years down the line, you might know two or three of those people who are still, you know, as they were, you know, the same, but other people just don't, you know, other life takes yeah, over. People then come back to it. I mean, you know, what we noticed it with the club, you know, we've been going that bloody long that, you know, people came along for, I always think that your natural lifespan really should be about three or four years of going to a club and then she'd either move on or settle down. Well, a lot of people did that in the 80s and then they came back in the you know 2000s uh, once the kids had grown up so uh, you know that music does stick with you yeah i mean that's the time isn't it and i sort of find that you know if you can just stick with it whilst you are a parent and you whilst you've got other things on the go if you could just hang on in there somehow and not let go of the cord then uh you can yeah. follow it back. And whatever you do, it. don't try and get your kids into it because that will guarantee they won't get into it. So I, no, I always play my, I've always you. played my kids sort of punk or early 80s in indie pop or something like that. I, I hardly ever played them soul, but at least one of them's got into it seriously you know, by me not playing in them. Yeah, no, I totally, it's, we've had similar things here. Is uh, I read somewhere that uh, when Push comes to shove, your all-time favourite song you said was Helpless by Kim Weston. Yeah, yeah, it's my official favourite song because A, Tamla Motown it w- was the label and um, my favourite and Northern Soul as well. I heard this at Kelmarsh in 1969 uh, when I'd never heard it anywhere else before. And it is a fabulous record. I, 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 keep, I keep worrying about it, but then when I hear it out in the club and I play it at the Christmas party, I think, yeah, no, I'm right. It, it is helpless. Yeah. I wonder, yeah, I, I'm trying to think of what mine is. It, it's uh, it's certainly <laughs> up there. I mean, I can't be... Um, you know, you can't, you can't deny, I just don't, I don't think you can deny obvious things sometimes. And although there are a lot less well-known Motown, Tamla Motown songs I love, I think there's some, there's just uh, something about the combination of the, 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 it's just Martha Reeves' vocal on, on, on Heatwave. I still, no matter how many thousands of times I've heard it, I think uh, it still just kind of brings me close to tears. Uh, because it kind of corresponds to just the feeling of falling in love, you know, and uh, that's just sort of, those are the records that I kind of seem to come back to again and again. Yeah, I think um, that's the thing with no, female but- voices. There's a certain timbre or whatever it is. There's, the, 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 there's, there's a sort of bittersweet um, touch to a, a lot of the, the singing in, in these sort of classic girl singer voices. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I get it with Marvelettes records as well. I mean, there's you know, we could be here all night, couldn't we? Um, anyway, um, but we won't because you've got to you've got to do the school run, and I've detained you uh, long enough anyway. So I'm go- at this point, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna thank you, uh, Eddie Crowsdale, and um, and just to lest we forget, if you like the sound of any of the records we, we mentioned, then they're probably on the. Uh, They've probably been put out by AD himself. <laughs>
or ace at any rate thank you very much cheers for more excellent music you can scoot over to the ace records website www.acerecords.co.uk all the wonderful music you could possibly need